This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, everybody. Welcome. 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 Your saltwater guide, Captain Dave Hansen, with another phenomenal podcast for you today. Today, we have a really, really special guest. I'm super excited to have him. We've had him on a couple of times. And he hasn't let me down yet, and I don't think today's the day he's going to let us down, gang. We have the great Bill Barney, the uh, master of surf fishing in California, Baja. He is the man. We're going to bring him in in a few minutes. Talk about. We're going to be talking about fishing, every kind of fishing, but we also are going to be talking about surf fishing. And today is text the show or send a message in. Wednesday, we always do that. You can ask Bill any questions you want. Just keep it cool, you know, how we are. Just don't make it nasty. Be cool. Send in your questions. You can either send them into my telephone at 949-374-0786, or you can ask the question on, yes, or you can ask the question on Facebook or YouTube, and we will do our very best to answer your questions, gang. I don't want you to forget it is holiday season. We got that great special. I've been on the phone all morning making people's uh, holidays a little bit better by dialing them in on this lifetime membership to my website, Your Saltwater Guide. You don't want to wait until January 1st because the prices are going to go up big time. I don't know if you've seen what's going on in the world today, but everything costs more. Loaf of bread costs more. Everything costs more. And... Your saltwater guide is going to cost you more next year. I promise you that. But if you get in now, you'll never get a bill from me again. Lifetime membership includes all four of the bundles and access to me anytime you want. And you'll never get a bill lifetime for 350 bucks. So if anybody in your family's thinking, I need to get mom or dad something for Christmas, here it is, gang. It doesn't get any easier than this. This is going to cover your Christmas present or your holiday gift or whatever you're looking for. I got you covered. So check out my my uh, lifetime membership gift to you, all of you for this holiday season. Don't forget to check it out. Give me a call, 949-374-0786. We'll get you dialed in. And then don't forget my store. We got lots of cool swag with all the Dave Hansen sayings on it, all the crazy things that I say, stop fishing for boats, start fishing for fish. I only know how to fish. I don't know how to do anything else. So many great things, hats, shirts, sweatshirts, coffee cups, anything and everything. Go to my store. 
get what you need, get in, get out. It's a great holiday stocking stuffer, holiday gift package right there. Your saltwater guide, the store, you can get all the cool clothes and be one of the cool kids on the street. And uh, today is free flow Wednesday. Okuma will be back involved with us at the beginning of the year, but Wednesdays right now are just all about me and Bill Varney. So we're going to bring the great Bill Varney onto the show now. I want you all to welcome Bill and let's get this going and send in your questions. Anything you want, ask me or Bill. We'll be more than happy to answer your questions. Bill, are you there? Hey. I'm here. Look, I'm here. <laughs> it's How amazing. Cold? How cold is it's, it? Well, Bill, let's is. see. It is, uh, it's 20, it's 32 right on the button right now so it's actually kind of warm for december up here in colorado in the mountains um and it's it's el nino year so that's what we expect up here is it'd be a little bit warmer a little bit more precipitation because you know we work full time for california here in colorado making your water so it's a full-time job here making your water and working on it today it's snowing right now oh perfect keep making us water we need the water Keep <laughs> making us water. Gang, this is going to be a phenomenal show because Bill has a phenomenal device to help you catch more fish. I call it a device. We've been using it in the wheelhouse on all the yachts I've run for many, many years. It's a phenomenal device. And you won't even believe how easy it is to have this beautiful device in your wheelhouse or on your boat. Bill, talk about it for a minute, then we'll show everybody what it is. Yeah, every single year um, we come out with the CCA Sport Fishing Tide Calendar. And like most of you remember it um, from the past, it was uh, Bill Rucker's uh, calendar. I think he made it for about 17 years. And then somehow I got drummed into putting it together. And we are very, very lucky because not only did we find the just the most incredible people to do the graphics on it, um, but also we have the uh, photographs and the databases of photographs from some of the greatest sport fishing photographers ever. I mean, Jack Nielsen. Um, I mean, you just go, there is just a list as long as your arm of the people who were willing to provide their photographs to us. So we're very, very lucky about that. And then the proceeds from the calendar um, go to support the cost of making the calendar and then CCA. So it's a great thing. And of course, in addition to all of the sayings and the, and the dates on it and the important dates and different information and tips and all these things, it has a graphic tide calendar that whether you're fishing on the beach, you're in the bay, you're outside the harbor, or you're at the islands, or you're um, fishing on long range trips, all can be used to help you become a better angler. Yeah, I'm just putting up the picture of the uh, tide on there, gang. And this is the device I was talking about. This is how we focus our days around tuna fishing, marlin fishing, sea bass fishing. We look at this calendar, gang, and as we look at it, we can see the peaks and the valleys. The peaks and the valleys are what we call slack tide. Now, if you look at the 6th of December, that was kind of, I bet you the 6th, 7th, 8th, maybe the 9th were a little bit slow as far as fishing goes, but the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 
all the rest of the days of December are very easy to figure out when the best time to fish is, wouldn't you say, Bill? Absolutely. You know, there are some definite differences between looking at the tide chart for those fishing from shore than it would for those fishing from boats. Um, and but besides that, and really to, to start with is, is like, what creates tides? You know, what, why are tides and the moon phases important to fishing? So when we look at tides, like how do tides get created? Well, of course, the earth has a gravitational force. And that's, of course, pulling everything from the outside of our atmosphere into the, the deck of our, um, of our planet. And, and then the opposite of that would be the gravitational pull that's caused by both the sun and the moon. So the earth rotates around the sun and the moon about once every, you know, roughly 27 to 29 days. The axis of the earth is not, you know, perfectly straight up and down. And, and let's say, let's use a contractor's term, a builder's term, square to the sun or square to the moon. It's actually at a slight angle which means that as it gets closer to the sun and gets closer to the moon is what makes our tide changes as it's spinning at the same time. So what happens is when the moon is close to the, to closer, let's say, never really close, but closer to the earth, it creates a bulge on the opposite side of the earth, and that creates a high tide. As the moon or the earth rotates and moves away from the sun and the moon, it creates a bulge in the opposite side of the earth, which creates a high tide where there was previously a low tide. So this interaction between the earth, the sun, the moon, and the rotation of the earth on its axis is what creates tides. And normally you have two tides a day. Sometimes you'll have three tides kind of um, slide in there in a single day, depending on it. And then you'll basically have two types of tides on, on our planet. You'll have astronomical tides, which are all have been recently known as as it called king tides. They're actually astronomical tides because they work in conjunction with the full moon and the new moon and its closeness to the planet Earth. Um, and then the opposite of that, and, and as Dave pointed out, like if you look at at the picture we had there, that was of September of this year. If you look at the 5th, the 6th, the 7th, the 8th, the 9th of, of the month, that's the very first um, group of dates there on the top there. Those are much smaller tides. Those are called NEAP tides, N-E-A-P, diurnal NEAP tides. And those are much less water movement than you would have during the astronomical tide periods which are always surround the full moon period, which in that month was the 14th, and the new moon period, um, excuse me, the other way around, the new moon period, which was the 14th, which is when you don't see the moon, and the full moon period where you see lots of the moon, which is around the 29th. That's when you'll have astronomical tides where you have the largest tide movement. Exactly. That's a way... You know what? Every time you're on here, it's like going to school for me. So I just learned a whole bunch of cool stuff about how the tide works that I didn't know, the bulge and all that stuff. So thank you for that. We have a few questions coming in already. But gang, if you looked at that tide calendar, we're going to talk about it a lot. We're going to keep bringing the pictures up and talking about it. But Bill, 
I know there's people right now that are going, I need one of those calendars. And by the end of the show, everybody's going to want one. How can they get these calendars? Please talk about that for a minute. And then we're going to get way into this because it's going to be a great show. And an hour is going to fly by. You can't even believe we've already been on here for 11 minutes. I know time goes fast. It's a, it's amazing. You know, there's so much to learn and so much of it is, is just common knowledge if you pay attention. Um, the, the calendar can be found at two places, really easy to get. Um, one is on my uh, Surf Fishing Tackle website, surffishtackle.com. So surffishtackle.com, that's easy. And then the other one is that, you know, this calendar, as long as they're not sold out, is at every tackle shop and every landing from San, San Diego to Santa Barbara. So go into your local tackle shop, go to your favorite landing. Fisherman's Landing is a great place to go. And then also just fishthesurf.com um, is our website where we have information about surf fishing. And then tied to that is surffishtackle.com. And that's where you find the calendar. Um, it's on sale at Surf Fish Tackle right now for $10.99 um, and no shipping. And because I'm in Colorado and you're in California, no tax on there. So that's a great place to go for the next couple of weeks or so. And then also it's at Tackle Shops for $15.99. And Elliot, the hardest working man in the industry, he's here helping us, Bill, even though it's not Friday. <laughs> Thank you. Elliot. Elliot's throwing all the... <laughs> cool stuff up so you guys can see what we're talking about gang this is a must have if you're a fisherman and i don't care if you just go out on three quarter day or half day boats or if you have your own boat you go out fishing you must know what the tides are doing all the time it has so much to do with everything if you guys are on your trailer boats the slack low tide is a horrible time to come into the dock if you're not fishing around tides, but you go out fishing, you need to know when that slack low is. Because if you're going to go try to put your boat on a trailer with that slack low, you're in big trouble. We have this calendar hanging on the on the uh, refrigerator, just like most people. And then we also have, for years, I had one in the bridge. But another thing I like to do, Bill, is take a picture of it with my phone. So I have it right there all the time. I when I was on someone else's boat, I could pull up your calendar. I could look at the tide and I know if we're in the bike time or not. If we don't get bit through the slack tide, then it's probably not happening at that spot. We have to move to another spot. I don't want. Well, absolutely. And, you know, Dave, what I also do too is I, you know, whether I am on the beach, I'm, I'm offshore, I'm on a long range trip, I'll take the month and I'll photocopy that page. And then I'll just fold it up and put it in my pocket. And not only can I use it as reference to look at, like, oh, this is when I should sleep and this is when I should be fishing and this is when I should take my wife shopping. Uh, not only is it good for that, but I can also make notes on it. And, and many times I will note and also take pictures of the conditions that day and what I caught that day so I can look back at that next year and say, hey, what did I do in September? What days did I go fishing? When was it the best and what were the conditions those days? Real quick, gang, if you look on the screen right now, those of you driving in your cars, you don't see this. But if you're looking on the screen, Elliot just made a QR code for your calendar, Bill. You guys can grab that QR code right now. You want, you're going to want this calendar. Let's just be honest. We all want it. I get it the minute it comes out. You're all going to want it. If you fish at all, 
And even if you don't, if you just take your kids to the beach, whatever you'd like to do as far as going outside, this calendar is a must to have. Grab the QR code now. You can get, you can order it later, but you want to grab the QR code so you have it. And uh, those of you that are going photocopy, what in the holy heck? Well, if you're not over 60 years old, you don't know what the hell we're talking about, about a photocopy. <laughs> but it's just making a copy, taking a picture, making a copy. Back when Bill and I were children at school, they would make photocopies of the test and send them out to everybody. But yeah, it's just making a copy. We actually had ditto machine. I, I must be older than you. We had ditto machine. That's right. And it had a handle and you turned it and it, and it made a, a copy of the previous one with ink going everywhere. Oh, yeah. And the smell of that ink. Yeah. I, if I smelled That's that right. ink, I knew we were uh, just about to have a test. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, here, here's a question I get all the time. And, and I want to talk about it from a surf angler's perspective. And then I'm curious, Dave, from your perspective offshore. So people often ask me, what's the best tide to go surf fishing? And just like everything else in life, you know, there's no one simple answer. There's a lot of different answers depending on variables. But let's break it down to like its simplest way of looking at it. So in, in Southern California, let's say if we're going from uh, Santa Barbara to San Diego to the Mexican border, we basically have two types of beaches. We have beaches that have been dredged. So if we went back to the 1960s, basically middle of the 1960s. Um, California dredged its beaches. So they went offshore in the South Bay. So Hermosa, Manhattan, Redondo, those beaches. And of course, they went to Huntington Beach. They went to Mission, Mission Beach in San Diego, uh, Pacific Beach, all of those beaches. And they put these barges offshore, which had these giant pipes in them. And they would suck up the sand from offshore. And then they deposited on the beach. Now, the reason primarily they did that was because they wanted to make the beaches wider and they wanted to, at that point, protect the real estate that was along the coast. Of course, that's become very important now as time has gone on, N not so much because the ocean is rising, because I personally haven't noticed that, but because the houses that were $12,000 are now $12 million, you know, so there's been a big difference there. So they have dredged beaches which they fill the sand there. And then they have undredged beaches. So Malibu, um, around Palos Verdes, um, it, down in San Diego, like San Alejo, Carlsbad. These beaches have never been dredged. So it, when I'm fishing a dredged beach, um, I love your comments, by the way. When I'm fishing the dredged beaches, I'm normally fishing two hours before high tide to two hours after high tide when I'm fishing for perch, corbina, spotfin, yellowfin, croaker, fish like that. The reason for that is that if you went back and looked at some of my family's pictures, my family moved to Los Angeles in 1866. If you look at some of their pictures all the way up till, gosh, in the 40s, I'd say the mid 40s, the beach from Palos Verdes all the way to um, Topanga Canyon, where that comes down to PCH, so Santa Monica, basically, that was all cobblestone rock along there. There was sand mixed in with cobblestone rock. So, like, if you go down to uh, San Onofre, 
to go surfing or fishing down there. You'll notice that's kind of what the setup is. There's kind of rounded cobblestone rocks mixed in with areas of sand mixed in with more rocks. That has all been covered over by 60 feet of sand. So when I'm surf fishing on a beach that's been dredged and it has sand covering what was naturally there, the only structure that's there is the structure created by the waves as they crash on the outside, they reform, and then they crash again on the inside. They make that inshore trough, and that's where fish feed. So on dredged beaches, I'm going to fish two hours before half uh, high tide to two hours after high tide. Because that way the water's in, it's covering where the troughs and the holes are. It's exposing sand crabs and clams and worms, and that's where the fish are feeding. Now, the opposite of that would be on a non-dredged beach. I can fish there both at a low tide and at a high tide because there's structure that's still there and has been there for millions and millions of years. So on a non-dredged beach, anywhere from maybe let's say an hour after low tide up to high tide and then any time around the high tide period now the exception to that would be when i'm fishing beaches that have a lot of kelp or eelgrass much of san diego's like that um, of course the malibu zones like that santa barbara zone is like that and generally there on non-dredge beaches i'm fishing one hour after low tide up to high tide the reason for that is i'm fishing at a little bit after low tide and if i have to turn around and look at the beach behind me it's covered with kelp that has been stranded on the sand it's not in the water with my bait it's not in the water with the fish the surf fish who don't like all of that crud rolling around in the surf it's on the sand and as each progressive wave comes up as it pushes the water in as the tide goes up the fish follow that in because what it does is now it gets the water over where their food is, whether that's clams or worms or sand crabs. And they're basically surfing each one of those waves in. But most of that kelp is on the beach behind me. If I was to fish those areas, so like Carlsbad, Mission Beach, um, uh, San Alejo, any one of those zones in San Diego and it's high tide, all that stuff's in the water around me. It's getting on my line. You know, it's like you, you and me taking a dive in the pool, Dave. If the pool, if it was windy the night before and the pool has sticks in it and grass in it and leaves in it, we're not going to want to go swimming. We're going to use the net and scoop it out real quick and off we go. That's the same thing with fish. If fish are in an environment where kelp is anchored to the bottom and that's part of their natural environment, a really good example is calico bass for that. They love the kelp, but when it's dead and floating free out there, they don't want it rubbing up against their body. They can't feed around it, and they generally find other areas. So dredge beaches, two hours before high tide to two hours after high tide, non-dredge beaches, an hour after low tide, up to high tide. The only exception to that would be two things. One would be if I'm halibut fishing. Halibut fishing, I'm trying to cover as much surface area as possible because I'm almost always using a battle star or a, a lucky craft or a, a Rapala. So I'm going to fish both high tide and at a low tide, especially minus tides, where I can cast to areas I normally couldn't get to. And that would be the exception to this high tide, low tide rule is halibut fishing. Okay. Well, that's, that's a lot of information real quick, Bill. You're always... <laughs> You always have so much cool stuff to bring to the table. That's why I'm so happy that you're going to become part of your saltwater guide. 
eventually you'll put those videos together and we'll get you on here because our our followers love to listen to you we have a couple of questions that came in already i just want one of our one of our buddies wants to know where would you or what would you be targeting in the winter time in southern california as far as surf fishing goes okay okay before i get to that question i'm going to target in the in the winter time let let me i saw there was maybe three or four i think it's ace wrote in and um maybe arnie and and a couple of the guys about how like for example ace says the san clemente beach restoration dredging operation is setting up shop just north of the reef okay this is really important <laughs> this is a secret tip i'm going to tell you that very few people know and it is going to make you a great angler okay when they dredge so sometimes they dredge from offshore onto the beach sometimes they dredge like for example in the Bosal chica wetlands and some of the wetlands in san diego county they dredge the entrances to those estuaries because they want to make them more accessible by fish and water because as time goes on they they silt in and fill in with sand so they go and they set those dredge pipes up right and let's say, for example, we take Bolsa Chica, comes out of the wetlands, kind of goes out in the water a little bit, then comes back onto the sand. When that darn pipe, that big pipe, that's like a that's like a 18 inch pipe. When it's sucking that sand off the bottom, what do you think is in that sand? Well, of course, there's a little gold in that sand, and there's a little iron in that sand, but there's worms and clams and sand crabs that is all getting sucked up through that pipe. And then wherever it's exiting the pipe, that's all going onto the sand into the water right there. The first thing you'll know, notice is when they set up these dredging systems and they turn them on for the first, I'd say week, but for sure the first two or three or four days, there are thousands of seabirds there. Well, why are they at the end of the pipe? They're not getting a bath. It's because food, it's like a cafeteria, is flying out to them. So most people, when you see the pipe set up and all that, and it, it makes the water really cloudy and foamy and off-colored on the outside, you think to yourself, well, I'm going to go down to the other side of the beach because it's just too disturbed over here. Wrong! wrong it, it's like a chum line right there so when you see them setting up that pipe if you have a chance to go down there and talk to them usually they're nice and they have you know two-thirds of the time they're anglers i always ask them you know when are you going to turn the pipe on oh we're turning on wednesday morning at 7 a.m i am down there wednesday morning wednesday afternoon wednesday evening and i am fishing right around the end of that pipe wherever that pipe goes down it makes that plume I'm fishing the edges of that plume and right through the middle of it because that's where the fish are. And there are some, I'm speaking about Huntington Beach, some monster, some five, six, 10, 12 pound spot croaker swimming through that stuff in a foot of water, eating all those clams. So anyway, that's a lo long answer about, you know, this dredging operations. But when you see that dredge set up, you ought to be there. And, and you got to tell everybody that you know not to go there. It's a terrible place to fish. <laughs> that's, that's where you should be. So in the winter, surf fishing in the winter, what happens is in Southern California, we have basically one of three varieties of sand crabs. Um, 
if you go from Santa Barbara north and go all the way up to Canada, there's a sand crab very similar to the one we have here that lives in very cool water. It, 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 although it sheds its shell occasionally to grow, it doesn't shell it, shed it as often as sand crabs would in, let's say, the uh, Santa Barbara or Pismo Beach to um, about Cedros Island, Turtle Bay, kind of in that zone. Those sand crabs, they hibernate in the winter here in Southern California. And when the water gets to about 60 degrees, they come up to the surface. That's when they finally make their way to the surface of the sand. And when the water gets to about 64, they begin to lose their shell. And that's when we find the soft shell sand crabs. So when we get to October 1st of every year, the water temperature gets below 60 degrees. And all of those sand crabs, which there were mil billions of them on the beach in the summertime, disappear and when they disappear the food source for corbina out on the general open beach disappears and so what a corbina do some go to deeper water but most go into estuaries harbors back bay areas where the water is warmer and there's not only a better environment for them to spawn but there's all kinds of bait back there so the corbina although you catch them occasionally in the winter or off the beach but the spot fin croaker, the yellow fin croaker, the halibut, all the different perch, buttermouth perch, barge surf perch, walleye surf perch, calico surf perch. I mean, there's dozens of varieties of them. They are all out feeding along the beach. Most find a spot where they are living or eating, finding food, foraging that is adjacent to structure, jetties, uh, harbor entrances estuary entrances rock structure that in the winter is where you're going to find the biggest fish and probably the most prolific in the winter certainly would be the barred surf perch the walleye surf perch and if you know where to look and where the secrets are you'd find the calico surf perch so that's what you're going to find in the winter all right i'm going to ask a question that i've always wondered and i never had the opportunity to ask this question since i was a little kid so the answer is probably easy, but I don't know it. What is up with these perch that have live babies? Okay, that's omnivorous. That's the only fish I ever remember when I was a kid. And we used to take, I'm, I'm a bad man. We used to take those babies when they were being born and put them on a hook and throw them back out there and catch a fish every cast. Well, <laughs> Barred surf perch are one of the few fish in the ocean that bear live um, uh, babies. Um, they don't, they, they, you know, you look at so many other fish that um, the male has milt, which we would refer to as sperm. The female has eggs. Um, and, and also in freshwater environments, you look at all the large mouth, small mouth bass. They all do the same thing. They create a bed. They lay down their eggs. The male uses his milt and, and he fertilizes the eggs. And, the eggs hatch and that's how they have, have babies. I mean, you look at turtles, they lay an egg on the beach, all this. Well, surf perch are, are different that way. They actually have live birth and they probably have anywhere between, I say in general, like two to maybe eight babies. Their gestation period, although I don't know exactly how many days it is, is fairly short. It's probably a couple of months, so they get pregnant and have babies. A few months later, get pregnant and have babies. They'll have the same process maybe three or four times over a winter period. Normally, they're going to have their um, hatch 
uh, have their babies in the, the fall, which would be October, November, December, and then in the spring, which would be April, May, and maybe the beginning of June. Um, one thing is when we're perch fishing, if we're not going to keep them and we catch these big females, you can tell that they're pregnant. Um, and if they don't have their babies while they're being caught or sometimes on shore right there, um, you'll be able to take them off the hook if you're not going to keep them. Just carefully put them back in the water. We always want to do that with these big females because they're huge producers. Um, but with that said, putting one on a hook and throwing it out there. With that said, the population of not only surf fishing in, in general, but barred surf person in, in particular is very, very healthy. There are literally billions of them along the coast. I, I wouldn't be concerned about taking a few here and there to eat or a couple of babies pop out when you got it into shore and putting one on a hook and throwing it out there because you are a fool if you think that those big corbina, those big, even perch and spotfin and yellowfin croaker aren't eating those babies. They are, they, when those sand crabs are not in there for them to eat, they are looking for those perch babies to eat. And I would think for every 100 babies a, a perch has, there's probably 10 or 12 who make it and all the rest are eaten by other fish. So don't be so concerned about that, but do be careful with trying to get those females back in the water if you're not going to keep them. Well, yeah, when me and my buddy Dave Burris first started seeing that, we were kids and we were like, oh my gosh, the the fish is having live fish. What the, this goes against everything we learned as kids. What do you mean the bait? It's having live fish and it's like, they're alive. Hook them in the nose and throw them back out there. And it was bam, <laughs> you're catching fish bam. like that. Yes, some of them are like, you know, they're like one to two inches. I mean, they're, they are a perfect, like if you look closely at them, they look exactly like a barred surf perch with the lines and everything. They're just much smaller. Yeah. And they're usually, when they come out, they're usually like three quarters of an inch too. I've seen some two inchers on there. Now, I personally have many times wondered if I could catch a bunch of barred surf perch and then put them on my boat and take them out and throw them on a patty of yellowtail. Woo. Oh, yeah. I'm telling you, that would just be like, you know, candy to a baby out there. Yeah. I'm not sure about department of fish and game, whether they would allow me to move them from where they are. They're real weird about that. Yeah. But, uh, but I've always wondered, I've always wondered. So Ace has another question for you real quick and then we'll keep going with the show. Do you see that? Right yeah, there? he says, how much, I do. He says, how much line do you like to put on your spinning reels without overfilling? The, you know, the overfilling of spinning reels, you know, it's like having too many beers one night or that extra piece of steak you shouldn't have had. And, and now all of a sudden when you go to lie down, you've got indigestion. I can't tell you how many times I would take my reels, you know, whether they're conventional or spinning to the tackle shop and they get overfilled. I, 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 I don't think they're trying to sell me more line as much as they're just trying to make sure that they have plenty on there. You do not want to overfill your spinning reel. Um, first of all, in surf fishing, you do not need a tremendous amount of line. The, the reason for that is that surf fish, they live in the surf, not only because the waves are crashing there and it's pushing all their food up, but because if they were to go outside the surf line, white sea bass, black sea bass, sharks, they will eat them. 
They're, they're not safe out there. There's nowhere for them to hide out there. So whenever you hook a surfish, I mean, I'm even talking big, you know, 22, 25 inch Corvina, 10 pound spot fin, they will always fight up and down the beach. They will never go straight out to sea. They will always stay within the surf line. So you don't need a particular, you know, a lot of line like you would need, let's say, with a big tuna or a marlin or a swordfish that goes on a long run and can sound on you. For casting, if you put too much line on on your spinning rail, when you go to cast it, you'll always get a wind knot because as it (coughs) goes up into the wind, the line, the whole rig slows down, and because of the wind, it creates what we call a wind knot in your line. So what I do is if there's an edge on the end of my spinning reel, I'll show you one right now. This is a, here's a, an Okuma, here's an Okuma Avenger 2500. Okuma makes fantastic spinning reels for the surf. I'm not saying they're the only ones but they make some excellent reels. So this is a, a 2,500 size. I, I like to fish a, a 2,500 or, or a 3,000 size reel. But when you when you look at the reel and you see right here where it's got the very edge that goes around the top there, you want to make sure that your line, whatever line you put on the reel, and I fish six pound monofilament, is maybe within an eighth of an inch of the end of that, no farther than that. It's better to have a little less line on your reel than too much line because with too much line, you'll cast out, you'll get kinks in your line, you'll get wind knots, you'll end up cutting that off and re-rigging and then ending up with the right amount of line that you needed in the first place. Right, exactly. All right, well, hopefully that answers that for you Devin Cruz. This is a question from my buddy Dan and Kim, and this is about offshore fishing. Marlin, they leave this time of year. What we found, and and there's probably a bunch of people out there that know way more about this than I do, but what we found talking to guys like Steve Lasley and Pete Grosbeck and Todd Manser, guys that really paid attention to where the Marlin were doing, they say that Marlin that comes into Southern California is not the marlin down in Baja. That marlin that comes into Southern California comes from Hawaii. It's not that that fish that we have down here in Mag Bay and Cabo. That fish that comes into Southern California comes from Hawaii, and then it boogies back across the the uh, ocean back to Hawaii as the temperatures go down and the bait leaves. I mean, the marlin will stay around our area till the water's into the mid to upper 60s. It's not really worried so much about 75 degree water, but they do like the bait. But they're going to boogie back across to Hawaii is what we've been told back when they used to tag them all the time. That's what they were finding out. And then it's a whole different phylum or whatever you want to call it, a fish down in Cabo. It's a totally different marlin. So hopefully that answers that question for you, Dan. And then, uh, Bill, I wanted to talk more about that calendar and what you got going on on there for offshore gang. When I talk to you guys on the game plans and I tell you how important it is for that slack tide, that's if you look at the 28th of September right there on the chart, those of you driving in your cars, I apologize because this is a very visual show today, but you can go back and look at it on YouTube later when you're done driving. But if you look at the 28th, there's some massive peaks and some 
and one big valley dead center in the middle of the day. What I try to tell everybody, if you're offshore fishing tuna or you're inshore fishing white sea bass, that hour before that goes to the peak and the hour after it goes to the peak, either the top of the peak or the bottom of the peak, that is downtown slack tide. And here's my theory on that because I've spent so much time out there on the water bill is we can see it happening on the water when the ocean's flat, greasy, calm. You'll see the bait come to the surface when the tide goes slack. When the tide totally stops moving, all the bait fish come to the top to feed on the zooplankton. That is why I believe the fish, they don't know. All the fish in the ocean started out as microscopic animals, except for that barred surf perch. All the rest of them started out as little tiny, little tiny wiggles in the water. And they knew that when the water stopped moving, the plankton would be on the surface. So the little fish would come up to the surface to eat. And you'll see the ocean will be flicking. And we call it rain bait. It looks like rain on the water. And they're all up there flicking. Mm -hmm. They're eating plankton, gang. They could be baby marlin, baby bluefin, baby yellowfin, baby dorado, baby tuna, baby white sea bass, baby fish are on the surface feeding when the tide goes slack. That always stays in those fish's mind. This is my theory. And that's why they have a tendency to feed when the tide goes slack. That's why you want to be in your zone, whatever zone you're thinking of, you want to be in when the tide goes slack because the fish are going to feed. And I don't care if it's a thousand pound marlin or a, a wiggle. It's going to come to the surface to feed at slack tide. You, we see it all the time in all the marlin tournaments that we fish. All of a sudden, the radio lights up. Everyone's calling in reports, and you go, oh, it's an hour before the tide. It's an hour before slack. But that's not the case in surf fishing, or is it? No, not at all. So surf fishing has so much to do with that tidal change. So the, the exception to that would be halibut fishing. So let's leave that out for just a second. I'll cover that. But let's take all the other fish, you know, the different perch, the spotfin, the elephant croaker, the corbina. They need moving water in order for it to expose their food. They need moving water in order for there to be places for them to hide. So you're always looking for larger tidal changes to have great days when you're surf fishing for those type of fish. And of course, when you have astronomical tides, which are one near the new moon, one near the full moon, about half a week on each side of those, you're having seven, six, seven, seven and a half foot tidal changes. Then we have a slack tide period, whether it's during that period where you have these big tidal changes or whether it's a neat period like we saw in the first week of September there where there are very little tidal changes. Those are your best halibut times. Well, why are those the best halibut? Like, why is a halibut? different than any other surf fish out there because of the shape of a halibut. So when you're halibut fishing, halibut, you're normally your best spots to fish for halibut are not some arbitrary open beach where you drive down in the middle of Hermosa Beach and you park your car and run out and that's where you're cast. Halibut congregate in areas near structure. As a matter of fact, from all of my diving I've done in years, not only do they congregate next to structures, you, so you have a jetty right here that's coming down into the water and right where the 
the jet the the rock meets the sand in a jetty right on that edge is where the halibut are going to be they're waiting for food to be washed from those rocks and a place for them to hide against those rocks so you're always gonna gonna find halibut that are near structure well when you have a tidal change near structure you have a current there if the and if you look at halibut especially if you do diving you'll notice that the halibut use all the fins on the outer side of their body to throw sand over the back of their body so all that's really left is the top of their head and their eyes so they can see out and look for food to come over them if a halibut during a tidal change where there's a current either going in or out comes out of that sand to feed they're like a kite they catch the the current and off they go and it's very difficult for them to come back to where they were before and rebury themselves they're very lazy by nature they're kind of like teenagers so they will bury themselves down in the sand and then when you have a slack tide period so let's say I go down to the beach and i'm at huntington beach and i'm fishing um let's say two hours before the high tide when it gets to be about 20 minutes be before high tide that's when that slack period is going to begin and be very um noticeable i'm switching over to using the lucky crap and for half an hour 45 minutes an hour i'm fishing halibut because at that neap tide period at that slack tide period they're going to come out of the sand and feed and go back and bury themselves in the sand again ah yes that makes all the sense in the world that makes all the sense in the world so we got a lot of people watching right now that are super excited about your wealth of knowledge and just want to show you what darren had to say they're just blown away because usually they just hear cap dave chit chatting and with no knowledge at all and then now here's bill with all this phenomenal knowledge gang there <laughs> darren i i love you man you're always there supporting me so thank you very much but yeah bill is a it's amazing Thank you, man. amount of knowledge. Something we haven't talked about that's near and dear to our hearts is keeping fishing open, Bill. And you're on the inside of this whole mess going on, and they want to – boy, they're – now they're after our halibut. I don't know if you've seen you, – you, yes. you know, I know, but I don't know if the rest of you know. Unfortunately, we started catching halibut in Southern California. Now – we haven't been able to target halibut for a very long time because there just hasn't been that many of them for us to catch. That doesn't mean there's not that many out there. It just hasn't been available to us to catch. Let's be honest. Now, all of a sudden, we're catching halibut. And I say this on my show all the time. As soon as they see us smile, Bill, and as soon as they see us happy in our speak pattern, and are talking on the boards because let's be honest, they're the the powers to be are watching every one of us. They're watching us, and as soon as they see us starting to have fun, they're like, oh, "We've got to figure out what's making these people happy." And they figured it out. They figured out that we were catching halibut. So now you guys won't even believe this. They are going to change the limit of halibut, which has been five for a epic amount of time. And I can only remember one day that I personally caught a limit of halibut. And, and I haven't been fishing that long. I know, only 49 years. <laughs> so, I mean, I understand what they're saying, but I don't. Because they found out we were having fun. 
and they found out we were catching how, but now they're changing it from five to two and it's happening gang. It's just so sad, right? Oh, it's tra It's tragic. I mean, I, like you said, I have, gosh, when I was a kid, I grew up in Hermosa Beach, and then we moved to Palos Verdes, so I was in the South Bay. I had a boat, a little Sabbat, from when I was eight, probably. And I fished halibut in King Harbor and, and Torrance Beach for like 25 years, and I never had a day with five. If I had a day that had two, it was a pretty big day. So I... I don't I don't exactly understand where that comes from 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 the, a scientific standpoint um, because there's really no data that they have that shows that there's been five caught by everybody. The only exception to that has been in the last and not so much this year, but in the last couple of years prior to this year up in the San Francisco Bay Area, where it was just absolutely wide open on halibut and it was just unbelievable how many they caught. And if they were worried about up there and they would say, OK, you know, up here, it's just like ridiculous. You can get five in one day. Let, let's make it four, three up in this zone up here because we're worried about it. I could understand that. But to go statewide on something that nobody's ever really uh, 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 been able to do is like not making any sense because it doesn't have any impact whatsoever. And why is there a problem with halibut? You know, come out and tell us why there's a problem, what's causing the problem. And then we'll say, okay, these are the solutions. We, we shouldn't catch as many, or <clears throat> we should feed them more, or we should do this or that, or whatever their reason is. So um, fishing decisions on made by the fish and game commission, who was implemented by the department of fish and wildlife were supposed to be based on science when they were unable to have enough money to pay for scientific studies. They changed the language to say, based on the best available science. So, for example, when we were talking about um, uh, putting in uh, wind farms in central California off of Morro Bay, their best available science was anywhere between 12 and 20 years old. So um, it's, it's really something that is, is astounding, the amount of money that is spent on all of these different organizations. I mean, the uh, Ocean Protection Council, state of California, you as a taxpayer, spent $21 million last year on, um, on, on work to be done on, let's say, the, the science, let's say, of the MPAs. You spent $21 million of your money that could have gone to schools and to parks and all that stuff on a place that's closed. I mean, think about that. You can't go and enjoy it. What, what, what did all that money that you did spent did? They went and they said, for example, one of the things they said in a meeting the other day was they, they said that they found that the inshore species, so surf fishing, you know, perch, vena, spotfin croaker, that there were more that they found in inshore areas of closed um, marine protected areas than non-closed areas. That is the most unscientific thing I've ever heard. When you take the best areas and you close them 
And then you later come back and say, oh, there's more fish in the closed areas than in the non-closed areas. Well, yeah, if you gave me the desert to fish on, <laughs> you know, versus Farnsworth Bank, of course, there's going to be less fish. So the science is, is faulty and we've just got to pray that it will get better as time goes on. Yeah. Okay. I think it's all to what I talk about all the time. It's as soon as they find out we're enjoying something that the only thing they can think of is we got to get this closed really quick. The last thing they want us to do as citizens is to enjoy our life. They want to make sure that we live in fear all the time, terrifying fear, just like you threw out a little thing uh, 45 minutes ago about how, <laughs> and you've been fishing this surf, you know, how the, <laughs> the water level hasn't gone up yet and it's you've been doing it for but it boy oh boy if you listen to the fear monger the ocean's rising well <laughs> yeah i i you know i haven't been able to figure that out and i'll and i'll tell you why i have surfed and fished my whole life uh, i don't surf anymore because i'm too old i probably kill myself now but i surf my whole life and i used to surf this one spot I mean, I surfed there for 50 years and I would stand on the same rock to jump off of with my board to paddle out. And that rock is no farther under the water today than it was 50 years ago, 60 years ago when I stood on it then. So I, I'm not sure about the water coming up higher. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that like stuff is sinking more than stuff's coming up. I mean, you got like Terminal Island, which is below sea level in Long Beach. You've got New Orleans, which is below sea level. Of course, they're worried about the sea coming up. These morons built towns below sea level. And it's my fault all of a sudden. Right. I, can't, I can't figure it out. I well, can't figure your it tax out. Money, your tax money will fix that problem. You know that. <laughs> well, I have a solution to the whole water rising mumbo jumbo. Here's my solution real quickly. If the water really is rising, you know what we need more of is we need more fresh water. We, right? So why don't we have a system where we employ people with all these trillions of dollars that we have for our infrastructure to put in a pipe system that comes off of the ocean somewhere in the East Coast and somewhere on the West Coast and dumps into a place like, well, for example, the Salton Sea. What we would have is we'd have this huge inland body of water that would reduce the level of the oceans that not only would be a fantastic estuary for birds and turtles and all kinds of animals, but it would be recreation for humans and then ultimately fresh water for drinking and agriculture. The glass, people, is half full. It's not half empty. Look at it as an opportunity and take advantage of the opportunity with incredible minds that we have as Americans to make things better in life. So I, I really, it's hard for me to buy into a lot of this stuff. And if it, it, and if it is the case, find a positive way to turn it into, you know, oranges rather than lemons. Oh, absolutely. But as you, and I'm sorry, I, I tried to be the most positive person on the internet, but as you know, the environmentalists do not care about animals, sea life, life, birds, anything anymore. It's all about green energy, period, end of story. Drop the mic. It's all about green energy. We don't care how many 
the environmentalists, they do not care about how many whales are going to die. They do not care about how many dolphins. They do not care about how many birds. We have to get this green energy going, Bill. You don't understand. We have to get this green energy going. Have you not been paying attention at all these meetings? Animals don't matter. Nothing matters. We got to stop using oil. We have to get on this green energy. I don't care how many animals we kill. We have to. That is the that is the way it is today. You and I grew up in a different world. I know we were horrible people. Mm-hmm. We went around and picked up trash every day and traded those bottles in for nickels mm-hmm. and dimes and quarters to go buy candy. We're the problem. We should have left all that yeah. litter laying around like all the children do today. There's not one kid out there picking up glass bottles or aluminum cans and trading them in for money. But you and I are the problem. That's so funny. It's such a weird weird deal that we're living in today and they they can't see outside and they can't see what's really going on in the truth we're not the sea levels aren't rising gang i live in mexico i live in baja i just drove the baja i just left mag bay and drove down here yesterday and we drove along and i would stop every once in a while and get out of the car and go take a piss and when i my urine would hit the ground it would expose seashells in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the desert seashells so the ocean my stupid mind i think well wow the ocean used to be right here so would that mean that the sea levels are dropping or rising i don't understand i'm so confused why is there a seashell where i'm taking a piss on the side of the road on the baja peninsula or my son grew up went to school in flagstaff right on the edge of the uh, the Grand Canyon. What made the Grand Canyon? Wasn't that water? So are we rising or are we lowering? I don't know. It all. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to get too. We're in deficient. Let's talk about fishing. But it all has an effect on what we're going to do, Bill. It they all they can think about is stopping you and I for fishing. And I want to. My hat is off to you. All the time and all the energy you put into CCA and trying to keep fishing open for all of us and all of our children and our grandchildren. The amount of time you give to CCA, people don't understand. And it's a constant battle. My sister, you, Todd Manser, Wink, Coda. I mean, you can't even talk about poor Wayne, how many hours. I mean, he. He looks at it and goes, boy, this is not what I signed up for, gang. And I don't know how much longer I can sustain this because it's just a constant battle. As soon as you think we want a tiny little thing, we've got 360. I mean, we're all dancing around. We got our license for 360 days now from the day you purchase it. That's a big deal. But that was a big push from CCA. But then you... Drop the mic for a second, and now they want your halibut, and they want our anchovies, they want our sardines, they want all this silly stuff, and you're on the inside working every day. So thank you so much for that. Well, you well, you're welcome, and you're you know you're right, Dave. It's like a machine gun. I mean, you've got like you know a couple of bullets coming at you, and you're you're able to dodge those bullets, and before you know it, there's a whole barrage of new stuff coming at you. I mean, it's like they spend their full time doing it. And unfortunately, the people that make the decisions on a lot of this stuff are not anglers. They're not hunters. They're not even outdoors people. They're just politicians. You know, and I don't know if it's the money that's involved or whatever. Um, 
but this is probably the last we should talk about it for now because I, you know, this is something we could talk about for hours and I could give everybody a lot of interesting insight about how, what goes on at all these meetings and who the people are and stuff, but it's so depressing. Let's just stick with fishing. <laughs> so Tim has a great question and this is a great question. You see it. Why don't they make halibut hatcheries? They do right exactly. down at. Yes. Um, hubs research, uh, hubs research. So in 1962, when, um, Milt shed Milton shed and his, fraternity brothers from ucla of course i'm a usc guy but it's okay from ucla they came up with this brilliant idea and they said like let's have this thing called sea world and we'll have all these sea animals there and and all that so two years prior to the opening of sea world milton shed funded and started hubs world research hubs research institute in san diego the reason that they started hubs was because they had never kept animal, especially animals the size of whales, in captivity. And they had to figure out if they could keep them in captivity, would they live, um, what they should feed them. So that's what they began to do at Hubs uh, Research Institute in San Diego. Um, Hubs, as time went on, just became its own research institute. And um, back in, um, gosh, about 20 years ago, with the help of Bill Shedd, Milt's son, um, they came up with a program that is is paid through our licenses where they could do hatchery science on white sea bass. So they were given a permit to do that, and they began to do that. About um, four years ago, they were given a permit for halibut. So they have caught a bunch of halibut outside of Mission Bay and, and San Diego Harbor, which they have now in, in breeding pens um, inside Hubs uh, Research Institute there, where they start with them where they're just an inch long, and then they grow them up to 10 or 12 pounds or so. And, and they do this not only for research, for hatchery, for letting them out back into the bays and the harbors and out in the open ocean, but they also do it for food sources to try to figure out, can they be produced commercially? How would you do it safely and without different diseases and all of these things? And then another thing that they've got there that they had a permit for was um, yellowtail. And they've got some yellowtail in a giant tank that are probably in the 12 to 20 pound range swimming around in a circle. And there's, there's these windows that are about this big and they're about at, at our height so we can look in there. And you watch these two or three dozen swimming around in a circle. Boy, all you can think about is throwing a bait in there. I mean, there's some monsters in there. But what Hubs has fought with for so many years um, at at um, uh, Sea World, I'm sorry, not Marine Worlds, at Sea World, um, is, or at Hubs rather in this case, is that it's very, very difficult to talk the Fish and Game Commission into allowing us to have these experimental permits to do hatchery science. We would love to do it with a whole range of fish, not only from the restocking standpoint, like we've done with sea bass, but also from the uh, food standpoint. So slowly but surely, the, the state is coming around. They've really come around. This is a real positive thing in the last three or four years in looking at the sustainability of, of shellfish and finfish for food sources that are grown in hatcheries or just offshore. So that is a positive. But that's what Hubs does 
every single day. And I really encourage everybody, if you have a chance and you're going to be down in San Diego, to give them a call and say, can you give me a tour of your facility? It will absolutely blow your mind on what the scientists are doing there. And you get to see all the different ponds of different sized fish, how they feed them, how quickly they grow. It's really quite cool. And Tim, you live down there in San Diego. You can go to Hubs Research Center. Like Bill said, we're inviting you all to go and see where on your fishing license, when you buy it, there's a dollar or two. I don't even know what the enhancement stamp is today. Mm -hmm. But whatever that is, that's where it goes, to Hubs. So you get to go see where your money goes. And if you you have to have the ocean enhancement stamp on there. It's the law. But now you know where your money goes and you can go take a tour. Like Bill said, you can call them up, then go see and go see. There is some really cool, positive things going on in the industry. I know we like to focus. We all do. We love to focus on the negative, but Hubs is not a negative place. It's super cool. They want you to see it. They do. You're not bugging them to come see it. You want to go see it. It's a cool outing to go learn a little bit more about what's going on out in the ocean. Like Bill said, you get to learn. The people know how often does that fish feed? What is, how does he feed? What is he eating? All that cool stuff that you're all thinking about. You get to learn all that at hubs and it's a really special place. And the sheds, thank goodness for Milton and his son, Bill. I mean, absolute hero and all the things they did for us. One of our one of our uh, followers is Jeff. I think what you were asking is Marine Land, not Marine World. Remember Marine Land? Yeah, I grew up right near Marine Land. Put together? Was it simply for entertainment? Yeah. Yes, it was. It was primarily put together for entertainment and, and some scientific study. Now, the history of it's really interesting. If anybody remembers Sea Hunt, the television show Sea Hunt. Okay, who is the who is the star in Sea Hunt? Does anybody right. remember who that was? We'll Boy see if somebody it. can remember that. Well, much of Sea Hunt was filmed right off of the Palos Verdes Peninsula by Point Vincente, where they used some of the caves for their fight scenes and all different types of stuff. Well, way back at the beginning there, before Marine Land occurred, there was a pier built there that was a scientific pier that used what was later to be the Marine Land boat. I don't remember the name of it. Um, that would go out and do scientific studies out there. So that was kind of originally the reason for Marine Land, but they realized that Marine Land was going to be, you know, could be economically feasible from a tourist standpoint. So that's when they began to build, and they built at that time the largest aquarium in the world. And they decided that they were going to have whales in that aquarium, which which a lot of people were against. And there's some positive and negative reasons there. And so they decided that the whales that they were going to put in there, which would be the best for that environment, were pilot whales. So they captured some pilot whales. I don't know the exact story between about that, but they captured the pilot whales and they brought them up to Marine Land. And Marineland had some of the most beautiful um, women. I'm not saying this from a misogynistic standpoint. They had Raquel Welch and they had Jane Mansfield. And they had all these beautiful women come and the um, it, it, for, for advertising. And these pilot whales would jump up and kiss them on the cheek and stuff like that. Well, 
a short time went by and of course Lloyd Bridges exactly and a short time went by and um that was the beginning of of uh San Diego's Sea World well San Diego when when Milk Shed and he has his fraternity brothers in 1962 began building that they were just going to have it as an aquarium with all kinds of sea creatures from around the world none of which were going to be dolphins porpoises or whales once they got the aquarium built which then became the largest aquarium for the number of gallons of water and they had two million gallons of water in it ever built in the world they got a call from a gentleman in seattle this guy was a commercial fisherman who came up with what he thought was a bright idea of capturing killer whales and keeping them in the water in his facility for tourists to come to downtown seattle and see unfortunately his facility the tank was i don't know the exact number but the tank was something like forty thousand gallons it was not even close enough to be big enough. So the first, so I believe they captured six, if I remember the number right, six killer whales originally, and four of those killer whales di died within a month because there were no way they were gonna survive in captivity. They had two left over. One was Shamu, was later become Shamu. And they called Milt Shed and they said, you have got to help us out almost like they were at the dog pound is there any way that you can adopt one of these whales to put in your giant tank to see if it will stay alive because they knew at that time there'd be no way that they could release them back into the ocean they would survive so out of the kindness of his heart milt shed said yes we'll take one of those whales they figured out a way how to get that whale down the coast from washington to to uh, san diego and it went into the tank there. I can't remember if it was six or 12 years that it survived, but they learned a tremendous amount of information from having that killer whale in captivity that helped them both, not only for having whales and porpoises in captivity later on, but also just the general management of them in the open oceans. They learned a tremendous amount from that. And that was how that all began. That's how that all occurred. And that was why Marineland was there later to be sold to uh, a, a bush, I think was also the ones who purchased them and ran them until the land became so valuable that they could no longer uh, keep the aquarium open. It was time to build condominiums there. But that was the story for those guys. In Marineland. In Marineland, yep. Yep. And then, of course, the beginning of, of uh, SeaWorld and how they ended up getting a whale there, getting killer whales. Crazy. Yeah, the one that they had at Marineland was called Corky, and the, and the pilot whale was called Bubbles. I Bubbles. Bubbles. I went there. I went to Marineland so many times. The only bad part about Marineland was it was so far away from the freeway. That's why it wasn't right. able to be sustained because it was 25-minute drive off the freeway out to Marineland out there on a, on a point yeah right on point yeah that aquarium Absolutely. was insane though that place was so fun as a fisherman as a kid they had so many bitching fish in that big aquarium that thing was humongous and and i'm telling you fishing below marine land on the on the rocks down there was phenomenal um there were a whole bunch of 
places that were south of Marineland toward Pedro that were, um, there were caves basically that high tide would fill them with water and they'd have these reefs or shoots that came into them. They were fantastic fishing, but without question, the best fishing was right below Marineland. There was a big cement abutment that had a pole coming out of it. And then it had a pipe coming out of the front of it. What was coming out of that pipe? All of the old or water that wasn't needed from the aquarium was being pumped out of that pipe directly into the ocean. And what do you think was in that water? There were tons of turds in that water from walrus and fish and whales. And the perch there, I mean, you have never seen opalite perch like that before. We would catch an entire gunny sack of opali perch using cane poles and a pea and then take them down to the market and sell them for a nickel a pound um, a couple of summers when I was 12 years old and 13 years old. There were so many fish there uh, uh, right below Marineland because all that affluent water came right out into the ocean there. So I miss all that stuff. And think about this. I'm just thinking about when you were 12, 13, I remember when we would get people to give us money for the fish we caught. Oh, my gosh. It was like, gang, you don't understand. We won the lottery, right, Bill? You won the flipping lottery. And you could not wait to get back down there and catch another fish to go sell, huh? That's right. You know, we would sell mackerel. I think mackerel would get a nickel, a mackerel. And I think Bonito would get a dime. And in like, uh, oh gosh, uh, like 68, I caught my first bluefin tuna. Um, and it was about where the Redondo Canyon is roughly out there on our little boat. We, we discovered one night in the, in the end of the summer that there'd be these big areas of boiling fish outside the harbor, outside of King Harbor, which we thought were Bonito at the time and no reason to go get them because they're in the harbor. And of course, within a short time, we discovered they were bluefin tuna. So I caught this 18 pound bluefin tuna and I took it down to quality seafood and they gave me 25 cents a pound. I was like a millionaire, you know, 12 year old with whatever that was, four bucks or whatever it was. So yeah, those were good times, I'll tell you. Good times. But all the fish are still there. You know, all the good fishing is fishing as surf fishing has improved dramatically over the last 40 years, much better now than it was 40 years ago much 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 better and what do you think that's because of i have a theory there, yeah there's two things one is water water clarity and and in particularly the clarity of water and then second is all of the estuaries that that have been opened up whether it's the Bolsa chica wetlands or san diego and all that that's where all of these surf fish live and spawn they all go in there in the winter with maybe the exception, exception of perch, and they all spawn in there. And then when the water warms up, because remember, it's very shallow in there, so the water warms up quicker there than in the regular ocean. When that water warms up to a certain temperature, and they know it's time for them to exit and go back on, along the open beach. So, if it, like, I mean, think about white sea bass fishing. Like, when I was a kid, I must have fished around Palos Verdes in my own boat, the three-quarter day boat that I worked on, half-day boat, whatever, a million times. And I caught one sea bass that was probably about 40 inches long. 
now 60 to 80 pounders this guy spears the record a couple of years ago over 100 pounds he said he said he saw one up by point dune that was about 120 pounder white sea bass much better than it was in the past and a lot of that has to do with the estuaries and another has to do with the water quality you know when we talk about the biomass in in let's say that we could take the south bay as an example being less than it was in the past like my dad used to catch albacore off the hermosa pier they're not there anymore because of the water quality and it's not that the water is like tastes bad or looks bad for fish fish like water that's off colored and stuff it's that what has happened is because of the water clarity so you went from clear water to turbid which is what the scientists call it or we we would call it murky water it does not allow the sunlight to come down through the water and what the sunlight does is it helps to grow marine algae marine algae is the very first building block of everything in the marine environment so marine algae is eaten by the clam and then the fish eats the clam and then the bigger fish eats that fish and so on and so forth so when we lost the clarity in water particularly in the south bay it has dramatically reduced the biomass of fish not because they died off or they were caught because they moved on to other areas where the water quality was better which supplied more food for them and that's the basis of what we need to do to make the whole thing even more efficient than it is today it's not to limit anglers on what they catch as much as it is to clean the water and how do we clean the water we clean it by treating our sewage by doing a secondary treatment of all of our sewage los angeles county produces 800 million gallons of primary sewage uh, treated sewage that goes into the ocean every day even more when it rains so until there gets to be a way for us to take our affluence from land both both from the streets that are washed off the streets and from all the toilets being flushed and clean that water so it's potable and could be drank in other words clear we're still going to have this problem in our local local areas absolutely gang one more time we want to talk about bill's calendar we've already had you for an hour and 20 minutes so i'm sorry we went over but uh bill's calendar is what we were trying to talk about today we we get bill and i we love to just talk fishing but Gang, this is a game changer for the fishermen out there, your friends, family, anybody you know that goes fishing, you want this calendar. It's a spectacular device for helping you figure out when the fish are going to bite. Surf fishing, it's a must-have. Offshore fishing, it's a must-have. That calendar right there is available. Bill's going to tell you where you can get it in just a second, and uh, we're going to wrap this thing up, Bill. Okay, well, I'm going to give everybody one more tip that we didn't cover because we got off on politics there. <laughs> we got to stay off the politics, man. Um, okay, good luck. So, full, yeah, good luck with that, right? So, full moon and new moon. So, of course, full moon is when you look up in the sky and there's this huge moon and you can go take a walk out at night without your flashlight. And new moon is where the moon is gone in the sky and it's very, very dark. So, in surf fishing, and and all, all of these things i i um, employ are just from um observations that i've made so in surf fishing when we have a full moon so if you look at the calendar if you go back to september the full moon was on the 29th of september i would always fish 
before and after the full moon, maybe four or five days before, four or five days after the full moon in the afternoon. When it's a new moon and it's dark all night long, I'm always fishing first thing in the morning. And what's my reason for that? Well, think about fish in the way that they feed. Most fish, particularly surfish, are on the bottom and they look up at their food that they're going to eat. So I've got, so I'm throwing out my Lucky Craft, my Rapala out there. It's got these fancy red and blue on the top and all that. Fish are not seeing that. They're all looking up at their food, right? And how do they determine their food? They determine it normally by the way it moves and by its size. So they're, they're like, they're eating anchovy sardine. They're all in this particular size. And what did, what has happened when that bait, that food is above them? It creates a shadow and they see the shadow and based on the size and movement of the shadow, that's what they strike. That's what they go after and eat. They don't go swim up around the bait and go, oh, look, there's a red eye and it's a little bit blue on the top and it's silver on the bottom and that must be my bait. No, they're seeing the shadow. So when we have a full moon at night, the food that the fish are eating, whether it's a sand crab in the bottom or a clam they knock up, the wave knocks up, or, or uh, anchovy sardine grunting over them, they can see the shadow at night. And so they feed at night. So when the morning comes, they're not very hungry. It would be like you and me going to in and out at four in the morning. I'm not going to go at IHOP, to IHOP at six, okay? Might go at 11, you know, not at six. So when it's full moon and there's a lot of light at night and you can go for a walk without a flashlight, you want to fish in the afternoon and evening from three o'clock to dark. That's going to be your fit best time to fish the beach. When it's a new moon and they're see anything at night, it's really dark. They've been hiding because they're afraid to come out because they know that they can't see anything, but maybe the big guys can see them and they'll get eaten. So whenever you have the new moon, best fishing time is going to be in the morning from sun up till maybe 10 o'clock in the morning. There you and go. so that's, that's yeah. yeah, that's the story of moons. And once again, if you'd like to get the calendar, any tackle shop, landing, or surffishtackle.com, you'll find it there. And as soon as you order it, we'll stick it in the mail. You get it in about three days. You can also, if you got a buddy or a boss, you want to have the calendar, you just in the ship to section, put their name and address. It'll be shipped directly to them and they'll see you're the one who sent it to them. Sweet. That's awesome. Gang, I want to tell, I want to reveal one thing here with my buddy, Bill. My buddy, Bill, is the reason why I will be at the Bart Hall show in Long Beach. I'll be up there speaking on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, because of my good buddy, Bill Varney. He got, he, he called me up and asked me if I would do it. And, uh, I love you, Bill. I begged, so. you. I begged you to come. <laughs> <laughs> and because of our relationship, I respect you so much. I'm coming up there to speak at the show. I'm going to come up there Saturday, Sunday. We're going to be at the Bart Hall show in Long Beach, California. So, Bill, what's and, the and date looking, on that show? Well, first of all, we're looking so forward, forward obviously, to seeing you, Dave. And then, and then the day that you're going to come up, we're having your neighbor, me and your neighbor, Wesley Bra, who is Cabo Surfcaster, one of the most incredible surf anglers I've ever seen. There's been a few that have come from Cabo, 
uh, Jansen and him is going to come up on Friday and speak before the show. So we're really looking forward to him. But but that Long Beach show, it's, it's January 25th through the 28th. Um, they've shortened the show down to a four-day show from now on, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So we're look, really looking forward to having you up there and just can't wait to hang out and have some fun. Absolutely. It's going to be a ball. So make sure you guys all come see me there. And then I'll be at the Pacific Coast Sport Fishing Show for the full four days with my beautiful wife. And Bill will be at that show also. So, gang, we got a whole bunch of fun stuff coming up. We'll bring Bill back on the show all the time. I love having you here. The audience loves having you. They just, they absolutely enjoy your knowledge and your the way you speak, because I'm up here, you bring them down and mellow them out and everything's good. So thank you very much, Mr. Varney, very, very much for a phenomenal day. Make sure you get that calendar, gang. Please grab that calendar. So when I'm talking to you about tides, we all have the same way to check it out. Dan, Kim, everybody, thank you very, very much. That is a beautiful, beautiful calendar with lots of really spectacular pictures inside but it is basically your Bible if you're fishing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just one of the tools in the toolbox that you need. And it's got some great sayings on there. So if there's a few things you might want to memorize and use. Like, for example, I'll give you a good one to remember for Christmas when you see your friends. You know, w- when it comes to fishing, there's a fine line between standing on the shore and catching fish and standing on the shore and looking like an idiot. So there you go. <laughs> yes there is and none of us want to look like an idiot none of us want to suck that's why so many of the people watching are members of my website because they're tired of sucking at fishing and now with you being involved they don't have to stand on the beach and look like an idiot so that's phenomenal that is great everybody i know i went way over i know you're all supposed to be at lunch or back at work right now thanks for hanging in there with us Thank you, Mr. Varney, very, very much for your time. Everybody out there, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, share this with your friends. It's hard to describe what you just heard, but if you share it with your friends, they can watch this cool video and listen to Bill and explain to you all about all the cool things we explained. Because for you to go out there and try to explain it, that's impossible. Just hit the share button. It makes it so much easier. Everybody will get to see it. Send me some stars. Help me feed Marley and the cats. Send us some tips on YouTube. We will be here with you tomorrow with my beautiful wife, Kelly. And then don't forget, internet sensation, phenomenal commercial fisherman, Luke McFadden is joining us again. This will be his second appearance. He was on the show about 10 months ago. Luke is a funny, funny young man. He is one of the hardest working young men I've ever seen. The guy fishes commercially for Uh, Those crabs in Chesapeake Bay, I believe they're blue crabs. I'm not positive. He's going to tell us all about it. I love, I don't know if you've seen him, Bill, but he has a really cool thing. He's got millions of followers on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube and Facebook. He does a thing a lot of times where he takes suggestions on what you think you should use for bait. And he'll put it in the trap. And then the next day he'll pull the trap live on the show and you get to see if he caught anything. With what you tell them, people have told them to put pieces of of uh, potato chips, flour, <laughs> just the most unbelievable things. And Luke tries it all, and he puts it in there, and you see if he catches. And it's the thing is, 
Will this catch? And it's fun. And we're going to have a great show Friday. Don't miss Friday. Don't miss tomorrow, gang. Get your questions ready. I need you to inundate the show with questions for Kelly Girl. Please make sure you send in something tomorrow for Kelly Girl. Bill, thank you as always. Everybody, have a great day. Turn off the news. They're all lying. This is the only place you get the truth. See ya. All right.